Season 2 of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and we are glad to have you with us. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast with the service of your choosing, and if you are on Apple Podcasts, kindly to give us a five-star rating. Most of all, please share this podcast with any family or friends who might enjoy it. This season, we will again be talking to various members of the Notre Dame family, hearing about their stories, vocations, and thoughts on the pursuit of holiness. Additionally, in the spirit of the Notre Dame Forum this year, on Notre Dame's response to the latest abuse crisis in the Catholic Church, we will ask our guests their thoughts on healing wounds and finding a way forward. I am very pleased to be joined this week by Sophia Carozza, a 2019 graduate of the university and valedictorian of her class. Welcome to the podcast, Sophia. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So let's begin, as we normally do, just introducing yourself to the audience, telling us a little bit about your background. So I studied neuroscience and theology at Notre Dame. I'm actually a townie, so I grew up just five minutes down the road from (laughs) Notre Dame, went to St. Joseph grade school and high school and parish, so very familiar with Notre Dame Avenue, and didn't really want to go to Notre Dame growing up, but really came to embrace it by the time my senior year rolled around, and I'm really glad I did. My time here at the university was incredible and I think really important for determining what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. So in many ways, Notre Dame was a, a very familiar place, almost too familiar. Yeah, uh, my dad teaches in the law school, so <laughs> you know I would grow up running around campus and South Quad in the law school, and many of my parents' friends were my professors here, so there were a number of things that I was more familiar with than my peers were, and it was tempting to say, okay, well, that, that's enough. I've gotten everything I could out of this place. But really, the experience of being a student on campus is so different from being the child of a faculty member. And so I'm glad I didn't dismiss it out of sort of a presumptuousness, thinking that I already knew what it would be like to be a student here. Yeah, that, that perception versus reality can be different. Tell us more about your family and, and that dynamic. Where do you fall in line with your family and those kinds of things? I'm the third of five children. My parents, Paolo and Susan, moved here right before I was born. So my older two siblings, Juliana and Giancarlo, were both born in D.C. where my dad was practicing law. And my younger two siblings, Matteo and Isabella, were born here. And yeah, we're a very close-knit family. Both of my older siblings chose to come to Notre Dame too. So although I'm not a legacy, I think we're a a pretty well-established Notre Dame family by this point. They've moved on to consulting and law school um, and moved far away, but my younger siblings are just 15 and 9 years old, so I think we'll be in and around this community for a long time yet. Sure. And what was your practice of faith growing up? How did you develop in your faith through the example of your family? Mm -hmm. I grew up Catholic, was baptized at just seven days old (laughs) on the Feast of St. Catherine of Siena, and attended religious schools growing up. My parents were always models in the faith to me, the way that they lived their relationship to the community, their relationship to the church, and even day-to-day their faith was always very attractive to me. But I think, as it must be for many children, it remained 
more theoretical or abstract rather than an interior lived experience of faith. And that wasn't enough for me. So when I got to high school, although I may have, on an intellectual level, continued to assent to my belief in God, it lost its attractiveness to me. There was no reason to continue practicing or behaving as though I believed in God because on an interior level, it just wasn't there. I didn't hear God in prayer, and so why would I ever make sacrifices for him? You know, I didn't see him and the people around me, so why would I be a disciple? Why would I choose to follow him? So for a while, early on in high school, I drifted away from the faith and my family and really who I wanted to be. And I think, again, I think kids go through these stages and it's a really important formative experience to take a step back and challenge assumptions that maybe you've been blindly following for most of your life. But really what that challenge did, what that distance from the faith did was make me confused and miserable and (laughs) just empty. So I, and I didn't, I didn't realize why I was feeling this way until I went abroad my junior year of high school and lived in Milan in Italy with a with a host family. And it was a really challenging year in my life. The first time I'd been away from my family with a bunch of strangers, taking really hard classes, navigating big city life, being responsible on my own for the first time in my life. And there was a way in which that year could have been just bleak and difficult. And yet, to date, it's been one of the most important and joyful years of my life because what I discovered there was that just being myself, my broken, flawed, limited self, I was loved. I was loved by the people around me and I was loved by God. And I saw this in the amazing community that there was around me in Milan, my friends, my professors, people in my parish community who were so patient and loving and showed me some of the unconditional and gratuitous love that the Father has for each of us. So it was really in that experience of finding an answer to my emptiness, discovering that life didn't have to be the way that I lived it before, that sort of shook me out of my established ways of being and, and showed me, you know, it wasn't like over overnight I suddenly had a personal relationship with God, but I had the desire for one, which is such an important prerequisite. Mm-hmm. I had this conviction that the most beautiful thing in life is to say yes to the divine who is presenting himself to you in your daily experience. And I wanted to have that adventure. I wanted to go down that path. And so, you know, I started my routine of personal prayer. I started seeking out friendships with people who shared my faith. I started asking why the church taught certain things. Uh, And that's the journey that ultimately led to my decision to attend Notre Dame. It was so important to me that here I could study theology. I could talk about my faith in my classes. I could have professors who modeled for, for me not just a vibrant life of the mind, but a vibrant life of faith. So it's been a tumultuous relationship with my faith over the years, but I think God really knew what he was doing all along. Well, and there are similarities, I think, that everyone goes through in the sense of, especially for people who grew up with strong examples of faith as parents, that at some point we have to make that decision that I'm going to adopt this for myself Mm -hmm. or I'm going to make this my own. I'm going to come to 
intellectually, but also spiritually and emotionally mm-hmm. assent to these things. Sometimes people have that in college, but it sounds like you had that even sooner with this yeah. tremendous experience of, of going abroad and, and kind of having to grow up in a rapid way by mm-hmm. being that far away from your family. But there was an inherent openness for you in that. Yeah, and it was an openness. This is the hard part. It's an openness that's driven by just the depth of the need of the human heart, which is a painful thing to look at. You know, it often, I don't know, talking to my friends, conversion often comes out of failure and recognizing your own needs. And sometimes it's easier to numb that and pretend that it's not there. But if we do recognize it, that's really uh, where the opportunity for conversion comes, the opportunity to discover that there is an answer. So it takes hard work and courage and vulnerability, which are not always things that you hear in in the story of faith. so Yeah, well, yeah. it reminds me of St. Augustine, that our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, that you found that restlessness and weren't sure where that was coming from, but thankfully found an answer for that in, in your relationship with God. Let's talk then more about your time at Notre Dame, and <laughs> you're, you're just fresh off of so many experiences, and I'm sure it's hard to distill that <laughs> into... a a short answer, but just what were some of the highlights here, things that helped you continue on that journey of deepening your faith and becoming even more the person that you are? Absolutely. I think there are too many to mention, but a few really important ones include my residence hall, the Catholic movement, communion and liberation, and studying theology in the classroom. As to my residence hall, I was a proud member of Kavanaugh Hall, and that started off more difficult than I anticipated it to be, living not just living with people I didn't know, but people who were radically different from me on mm-hmm. a number of levels, mm-hmm. and being in an environment of 230 women with whom I didn't know how much I could share if I would be accepted, whether or not we approached life in the same way. And often the answer was no. And so really my time at Notre Dame was learning that love is still possible even when we have these differences, even when we're all impatient and flawed and low on sleep. (laughs) And when love is present in a community like a residence hall, it's amazing because these are women who you're sharing your daily life with and they see all sides of you and they see you after that failed exam and that sleepless night. And so when love is present, when they do look on you with compassion, when you do find a point of connection with someone who's really different from you, it's truly incredible and a real opportunity for wonder at God's providence and the mystery of his love for us. So again, it wasn't always easy to live in a residence hall, but it was a really important way that I learned to make my heart a little bit more like the heart of Christ and a little bit less just consumed with my own interests and my own plans and mm. my own ideas of who who I would choose for myself. Yeah, not getting to choose your roommate, let alone yeah. <laughs> 230, <laughs> 230 plus other. It reminds me of the, the journey we take as, as a family, that we're hardwired in a way to think about our own self, our self-preservation, our advancement, those kinds of things. And then when we interact with other people, sometimes that gives us pause about 
well, this is what I want to do, but this is what you want to do, and how do we, as a family, as a community, find that way together? And inevitably, with that many people all in one place, there's going to have to be some compromise. There's going to mm-hmm. have to be some understanding. There's going to have to be some putting other people first before before yourself. Yeah, it definitely requires compromise, understanding, vulnerability, patience, all things that I think are really essential if you're going to be a force for good in your family and community and honestly your own life. So I'm really grateful for that experience. The second key piece, I think, was my experience of communion and liberation which is a Catholic lay movement that was born in Italy in the 1950s. And here on campus, it's, it looks like a weekly meeting where we share our experiences of faith and engage with a text written by Father Luigi Giussani, who's the founder of the movement. Mm-hmm. But we'll also get together for dinner, for mass, for playing soccer, for cultural events. So it's really a friendship that accompanies you in your journey of faith and helps you approach everything in your life, whether it's your studies or your relationships or challenges that come your way, to approach all of it looking for Christ's face, asking for the meaning of it, not negating anything or censoring anything, but really looking at all of reality and saying, okay, this is what's given to me. Where is Christ? So for me, it was really important to belong to this because it's easy to get lost on a college campus in the fragmentation of your daily life, to get lost in competition or comparisons or other people's expectations for you, or even to become so, you know, sleep deprived and overwhelmed that you just kind of float by and the semester passes in the blink of an eye. But with communion liberation, there was always, every week, and honestly, whenever I saw the faces of any of my friends in the movement, there was always this question that was born again in my heart. That is, why am I doing this? What is the meaning of this challenge? Uh, How is it that I see Christ present in my studies? And so everything takes on this added dimension, which is the relationship to the divine. And so it gave me strength encourage to make sacrifices, to pursue what I authentically knew God was calling me to do, to find friends who were as alive and passionate about life as I was. So yes, yeah, so that was a really important way in which I grew my faith here at Notre Dame. How did you come to know about it? Did you know about it from your time in Milan in high school, or did you discover it while you were here on campus? Or So I've known about CL for a very long time because my dad was in the movement when I was growing up. Oh, great. But my personal encounter with it came when I was abroad in Milan. And in fact, all of those people who I mentioned earlier showed me something attractive about the faith. They all happened to be in CL. And so for me, it was important to find a university where there would be this community because I knew that the kind of person I wanted to become was the kind of person who would find in CL a resource for growing in my faith. And what are some of the principles under which the group functions? Mm -hmm. So one would be the understanding of the incarnation as an event that happens continuously throughout history, that God became man and enters into the horizontal arc of human history. It's this vertical line that comes into this human horizon. And 
that every day each of us has the opportunity to discover this event in our own life. It's not just some abstract theological dogma, but something radical that presents itself to us every single day. And that if we are to be truly human, we have to take this seriously. You can't ignore the proposal because it bears not only on our eternal salvation, but on our happiness and the hundredfold here and now. And another principle is that you don't have to leave your everyday life in order to find Christ, in order to have this encounter, in order to respond to the incarnation. It's precisely in the mundane, in the nitty-gritty of our daily life, in our problems, our studies, our relationships. It's there that Christ communicates himself to us. So the invitation that the movement proposes is always fidelity to the Catholic Church. It's a Catholic movement, and Mm so uh, the answer to our longing is contained in the sacraments and through which the church brings us to salvation. But this also looks like a companionship of people who may be in different places in their life, but their hearts are all yearning for the same presence, the same encounter with God. Well, and I like that idea of it's in our ordinary life where where God becomes known to us, where God becomes present. That's part of the point of everyday holiness, why we're talking about this in this podcast, that it is in the everyday that we can seek after holiness. But I also think about the ordinary circumstances in which Christ came in the initial incarnation, and that here's a carpenter and his betrothed, and they're going to the census, and they're staying in the stable. I mean, it's a very ordinary circumstances, everyday life, and all of a sudden God breaks in, and there's, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden there's angels and <laughs> magi and some extraordinary events within this, but God does not come to us always in bold and, and flashy ways, but it's often in the everyday moments and the relationships and the people. The whispering voice. That we, that we recognize, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it's just, it's a, it's a question of recognition of Christ in those, in those people and the events that's important. Mm-hmm. Good, that's helpful. And then you had mentioned one other aspect of your Notre Dame time that you wanted to discuss. Yeah, studying theology here at Notre Dame was such a gift. I didn't come in planning to study theology, of course, beyond the two required classes. I came in as a double major in neuroscience and math. And as I grew more and more disillusioned with math, I discovered that theology actually was an incredibly dramatic and exciting field of study for me. Um, I'd taken well, we called them religion classes, but I'd taken theology back in high school and didn't, you know, didn't dislike it, but found it to be dry and intellectual and somehow irrelevant to my daily life. Whereas when I started taking it again here at Notre Dame, in part because of my reversion to the faith, every question that we engaged was alive and charged with meaning and importance for the way that I lived outside of the classroom, whether it was studying the patristics and really discovering how the church came to hold certain positions, um, or really intensely studying scripture and having a new understanding of the mass, debating freedom versus God's providence. All of these questions informed my faith in a way that made me happier and more hopeful and more loving outside of the classroom. And so for me, it became obvious that I needed to keep studying theology, that it was something God 
wanted for me. And in the end, I can't imagine my study of neuroscience without my study of theology. It became sort of a hermeneutical key that unlocked the mysteries that I had encountered in philosophy and neuroscience and my daily life. So really, really essential to the woman that I've become. And I'm glad that I took advantage of it because as I'm going to a secular institution now and going on to study just neuroscience, I know that that doesn't mean it won't be informed by everything that I've learned in my theology courses here at Notre Dame. And it's a special gift that I think students are offered here to recognize that faith and reason, science and religion, whatever way you want to put it, they don't have to be opposed to one another. Mm -hmm. And I have not studied a lot of neuroscience, but there's nothing like seeing the intricacies of the way the human body is made up and how delicate and amazing it is, I think for me, leads me to faith, Mm -hmm. to say this being of supreme knowledge and intelligence had to be a part of all this, the, the way this has come to be and come to work. We don't even understand the full depth of the mystery that we are. So if I could hear you talk about your study of neuroscience and what was gratifying about that to you as it related to mm-hmm. your faith and, and, and where you see yourself going. Yeah, I could talk about science and faith all day long. I mean, I really encounter God a number of places, the Eucharist, the mountains, but one one really important place is looking at a microscope at the cells that in our brain make up our nervous system that underlies who we are and how we come to be. It's truly extraordinary. There's nothing like a brain dissection to make you full of awe at the mystery of human life and God's providence in creating us the way that we are. So I'll for take me, your word for it. I only did cats in high school, but never got to a brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the brain, the brain is something else. So for me, my, science and faith go hand in hand. It's amazing how many themes in neuroscience dovetail beautifully with theology. In studying the development of the brain, you can't have a conception of the human person other than that. We are created in and through and for love, which is, anthropologically speaking, the doctrine of the Trinity. You can't look at the mystery of a human child and how over the course of three years her nervous system proliferates and is organized and refined without looking around at the world and saying, I am so dependent on my parents, on my environment, on all of these things that have shaped my nervous system into what it is now. It totally dispels the contemporary myth of self-reliance, independence, and self-actualization. If you study neuroscience, you can't honestly believe any of those things. And again, just the wonder that you experience at the intricate and delicate yet so strong functioning of the nervous system Mm -hmm. is something that drives me to marvel at God's providence and the magnificent way that he created us. So my studies of neuroscience have only reinforced my faith. I'm very far from those neuroscientists that believe they've disproved free will. But I do think that neuroscience really needs to be moderated and informed by theology, by a healthy understanding of the limits of science, an appreciation for mystery, 
a respect for the human person first as person rather than as a scientific subject. So I really do think that as beautifully as science has contributed to my faith, that faith has a really important role to play in science in the modern world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's certainly the hope that we have here at Notre Dame and, and beyond. And we will share with our audience, you did very well in all your classes at Notre Dame because you were your class's valedictorian. So tell us a little bit about that experience of being a valedictorian and, and what that was like for you. It was an interesting experience. Very surreal at first throughout the whole process. I was just honored and surprised to have been, you know, selected as a candidate and then for interviews and ultimately to be chosen as the class valedictorian. Because I don't take lightly the fact that I was asked to represent my senior class. Mm -hmm. There are extraordinary men and women in the class of 2019 who are brilliant and compassionate and transformative leaders in every domain of society. And so to stand up there on the stage as their representative was a pretty daunting task. But my friends helped me understand that this wasn't just something I was asked to do on behalf of the administration, but really something that I could be doing for them. Mm -hmm. That for them, it would be a gift to look up there on the stage and say, yeah, Sophia is speaking on behalf of me right now, and, and it's good to see part of myself up there. So with that perspective in mind, I was much more peaceful going into commencement weekend and really just grateful for the opportunity to share what I've learned during my time here at Notre Dame. I think commencement is a really unique time because we received such incredible formation here at the university, and yet after that, we're just sent off into the world. Now, I know the Alumni Association does incredible things to maintain. <laughs> yeah, you're not totally separated. We, got, we have faith in D. <laughs> to <still>. maintain <laughs> that family. But, you know, so many kids are then going to start nine-to-five jobs yeah. in cities where they're total strangers, and they don't know what lies ahead of them mm -hmm. for the first time. They're not picking their courses six months in advance. It's right. just so much is unknown. So I was so grateful for the opportunity to remind my classmates, and quite honestly, I was preaching to myself, <laughs> of these three themes that I thought were so important to remember going forward so that we can actually shoulder the responsibility and accept the gift of what this Notre Dame education has been for us. And I was very calm up there on stage. I didn't expect to be. I'm sure it was probably because there was a whole convent of nuns praying for me, the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration out in Mishawaka. <laughs> Wonderful. But really, it was such a gift. And, and I look back with fondness on that weekend, as busy as it was. Yeah. And what were those three themes that you tried to impart both to yourself and to your classmates who were listening? The first was that we are not just a mind, but a body and a spirit, a reminder that as a human person, we can't just be focused on economic or material productivity and success, that our hearts are made for so much more, and we need to pay attention to our well-being and our flourishing in a full sense. I think that's it's easy to put that by the wayside as you're trying to advance in your career or even just contribute to your community. But it's really, really important to take care of your body and your spirit if you're going to be the best that you can be for your family and community and the world. The second was that we need to take risks for others. Hmm. 
to be comfortable with vulnerability and sacrifice and suffering, to try to find meaning in those things, but not to shy away from them out of fear or insecurity. Because really, it's only when we give ourselves to others, when we sacrifice, when we take up our yoke and we strive to find meaning in the cross, that we can become ourselves, that we can be fully human, that we can be fulfilled because Christ is our exemplar. He's the one who we're following and we can't follow him without the cross. Mm -hmm. And then the final one was that we need to live our daily life intensely. We are invited to live our daily life intensely, that it is possible to look at the daily challenges and mundane realities of your life and to find meaning present in it. The meaning that I've found is the presence of Christ, the encounter with Christ. And obviously it's a work every single day to be faithful to that meaning, to continue seeking that meaning. But I've found in my own life that with the help of the church and with the help of my friends, it is a journey that I can walk on. And it's a journey that brings me so much more joy than chasing my own ambitions and ideas. So I concluded with that because ultimately we're formed not only to be citizens of the United States here at Notre Dame, but as future citizens of heaven. And so I think the most important thing any one of us can do with a Notre Dame education is to seek after Christ. So if any of those seeds that I hopefully planted in the minds and hearts of those who are listening have borne any fruit, I'm, I'm just grateful that I had the opportunity to share those words with them. Well, I'm sure they had an impact, and I, I know just around here I heard some great comments about your speech there at commencement and how meaningful it was. And what it makes me think about is changing the perspective of a horizon that a lot of times growing up and for those who are really seeking a college education, the the end goal horizon seems to be getting into college or getting into a great college of Notre Dame. But then you get to Notre Dame and you think, okay, now what? Now I have to make some decisions. And we get to the end of that and there's a nostalgia, of course, of this was a wonderful time, but now it's, okay, my first few years of my career, what or grad school, or what, what am I going to do? But what you're reminding us of is to, yes, it's important to pay attention to those many milestones throughout our lives, but it's also important to never forget our final end goal is heaven, and that pursuit of holiness and an active life of faith through all these other decisions is critical so that we don't get to the end of our life and think, oh, you know, now I need to all of a sudden think about heaven, Mm -hmm. that it's been something that's been present with you the whole way. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful thing is if you are pursuing that ultimate horizon, it doesn't detract from, but rather enlivens your pursuit of everything else in your life. My faith has made me a better sister and a daughter, a better student, a better member of my community, a more creative and passionate scholar. Everything in my life has been filled with more meaning because my ultimate goal is Christ. Mm -hmm. That's really inspiring. Let's shorten the horizon for a minute and talk about the near future. Where are you headed now that you've graduated from Notre Dame? So mid-September, I'll be heading to the University of Cambridge. 
I'll be pursuing a master's and a PhD in neuroscience, but with a particular focus on child brain development and the intersection with psychiatry. So what happens in a child's brain as a result of abuse and trauma? What can we do about it to help the child build resilience? And on a neurobiological level, what's taking place? What's the mechanism? And I'm really excited by these questions because they're so interdisciplinary. It opens up to this whole range of questions about what it means to have a just society, what it means to have mental health, what the relationship between the brain and the mind and the spirit are, all kinds of things that I think are really worth talking about and studying. So I'll be there for at least four years, God willing. And <laughs> I'm, I'm drawn to graduate studies not only because I can't imagine leaving the classroom, but because I hope to one day be an academic and to teach. I really love teaching, especially about the brain. I think it has a tremendous amount of power to motivate behavioral change and to engage students who otherwise might only be interested in the material aspects of science and remind them that those material questions cannot be separated from the other questions of life, the questions of meaning, the questions of suffering, the question of fulfillment. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to teach neuroscience one day. Yeah, I hope that, that that comes to fruition for you. Was that your decision to focus on children and their development? It was my decision. I, I could probably study anything in neuroscience, but child development is more beautiful than anything else, in my opinion. I chose this topic because in my service work, in my volunteer work, both as a mental health counselor and also in a local juvenile justice center, I've seen that the experiences a person has in childhood have tremendous power to affect the rest of their life, Mm -hmm. both in a negative sense where they impair health and well-being in every domain for years, but also in a positive sense where one key relationship can be the source of strength and resilience for a child throughout his or her lifetime. So my goal in studying child development is to tip the balance on that scale, to encourage parents and educators and politicians, ordinary men and women, to focus on the first years of a child's life, whether that child is their constituent or their own son or daughter Mm -hmm. or their student. Because I really think that so many of our social ills, so many of the sources of senseless suffering in our modern life could be alleviated by a perspective that takes into account the science of early childhood development. We need to look at the first few years of life. We need to value them. We need to value the role of parents in those years. And so I'm excited to be a voice for that kind of change. And of course, my mind goes through the crisis that we're continuing to suffer through in the church. And sadly, the trauma that was inflicted oftentimes on children by trusted members of the church and sometimes our own lack of understanding of what the best response should be to some of those victims and some of the structures within the church. So as a Catholic, as a emerging neuroscientist, what do you think the steps are 
as a church towards repairing some of those things, towards a new future where we see the importance and the value on forming our children in the absolute best environment possible. Absolutely. This is a particularly relevant field of study right now in the church and a really painful one because neuroscience honestly gives me a vantage point where I can see one way in which this crisis is so traumatic for children. We talk about in neuroscience, we talk about religion as a protective factor against childhood trauma. Mm -hmm, If -hmm. a child has religious faith, he or she is more likely to develop resilience in response to abuse and neglect. Mm -hmm. But when the perpetrator of abuse is a religious authority, that makes that, that not only inflicts a trauma, but it takes away one of the most important sources of resilience. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, you can't quantify it, but it's like double the trauma for right. this poor child. And so really my heart just cries out against this violence and the way it's stripping souls away from God, these poor children. So, I mean, I think the most important thing for the church right now is to cast aside any hesitation or trepidation and to full-heartedly go after reform and justice. And this, of course, has to come from all angles. We need mental health services provided by good Catholic therapists to all those who might have been impacted directly or indirectly by this trauma. We need transparency in seminaries and in the magisterium. And we need fearless incorporation of lay voices Uh, into the conversation around what changes need to take place. We need good research on what what can be done to effectively prevent anything like this ever happening in the future. We need strategies for restoring public trust in the church. There's no one-size-fits-all answer. Mm -hmm. It's not just a question of clericalism. It's not just a question of changes over the course of the 20th century. We need to go at it from all angles. Including neuroscience. Right? Including yeah. neuroscience. <laughs> including neuroscience. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure you will be part of that solution, so thank you for what so. you're able to offer. You mentioned you were baptized on Catherine of Siena's feast day. Who have been some of the saints who have inspired you in your life and as you have grown and developed over time? Thank you for asking that. This has actually been a really beautiful summer in my relationship with the saints. Um, I've always felt like I wanted, you know, a better relationship with them or a more personal relationship or more personal devotion to saints. Um, But I could never make it happen by myself. But Mm -hmm. this summer, they really reached me. Catherine of Siena is one of those saints. I actually chose her as my confirmation saint Mm. before even knowing that I was baptized on her feast day. And she and I share a lot with respect to our challenges and difficulties and also our struggles. I suffered from an eating disorder early in high school, and she had similar fixations Mm. with food that ultimately ended her life. I had, you know, struggles with depression as well, and she had very serious periods of darkness. But at the same time, I have a longing to be of service to the church and the world. I have a longing to be totally devoted to Christ, and she shows me that these things are possible even for someone who has the brokenness and the limitation that that I have. So she's been a really important intercessor for me throughout my journey. Mm -hmm. But I would say another one is 
Archbishop Romero, St. Romero, Mm -hmm. who I had the privilege of visiting, or his tomb in uh, El Salvador. And he's a model for me of overcoming an attachment to one's own safety and to not be afraid of being a fool for Christ. Mm -hmm. I have a big devotion to St. Mary Magdalene and her fearless grasp at Christ, the one who had cast seven demons out of her, she just knew that he was the only one who would satisfy her heart. And so she was the one who he chose to entrust the proclamation of the resurrection to. Um, So she's a huge model for me in her devotion to Jesus Christ. And finally, I think St. Faustina, I can't I can't not mention her. The devotion to divine mercy has been very important in my own journey of healing. And I think through St. Faustina's intercession, Christ's mercy is really important in the 21st century. So many souls, I think, are being brought back to him even now through her message, through her prayers. And so I'm so grateful for her accompaniment. It's hard to choose, though. It's a really yeah. great uh, cloud of witnesses. <laughs> we have a lot, a lot of help. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned some of Catherine's struggles because w- the saints are, are inspirational in both ways for us. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes you read a saint biography. We have a lot of them on Faith India every day. It's only the highlights of these big moments, but we've been talking about the everyday, the mundane, Mm -hmm. the struggles even, that sometimes knowing even the fullness of a saint's life and saint's story can be instructive because then all of a sudden we see ourselves in that too, that, wow, I I struggle with that. Or, yeah, I've I've had my own dark nights of the soul. Mm -hmm. That that doesn't diminish our admiration for them. I, I would say it increases it because despite that, here are these fools for Christ, as you say, who accomplished great things and are Mm now uh, a witness for us. Yeah, the saints are fully human. There's one that struggled with, you know, whatever challenge it is you might be facing, and that's such a comfort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've mentioned the name of this podcast, Everyday Holiness, and we always like to ask our guests how they are seeking holiness in their own lives and who are some of their models of holiness. So would you tell us about your own pursuit of holiness? So the saints are huge models of everyday holiness for me. I spent this summer working at a Benedictine Abbey in Colorado, and I really encountered the spirit of St. Benedict there. In the women around me, in my reading of his autobiography, in my prayer, in my work, one of the big insights that Christ gave me from my time there was the potential for a radical unity in my work and in my prayer, Mm. that it is possible to offer your work as a prayer to Christ. It's possible, even in the midst of shoveling manure, because this was a farm, (laughs) or baling hay, to turn to him in your heart and to remind yourself of his loving gaze on you, to experience again his presence. And I find that it's in that inward turn, in that act of trust in his love, that Christ gives you the strength to be the person that he wants you to be. He gives you the courage to adhere to the virtues. He gives you the courage to ask the difficult questions and to be vulnerable. He gives you comfort in your sorrow. So for me, I think this journey of everyday holiness is one of 
constant remembering, mm-hmm. always remembering that Christ is present, that Christ loves me and he is the one for whom my heart is made. And then a constant work, a work of allowing his life in me to grow always more so that I can truly say in the words of scripture that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Mm. And seeing everything in my life flourish as a result gives me the courage to keep doing that work even when it's hard. Well, and I think it's a hopeful point, an important point, because lots of different people listen to this podcast or subscribe to Faith in D, and not everybody's a priest or religious, or not everyone gets the, the blessing that I have of working in a, in a faith-related field. Some people are car mechanics and custodial workers and work in hotels or hospitals or wh- whatever the case may be, but what I'm hearing you saying is that in any work done in a virtuous way, not forsaking our faith, but letting our faith live through that, that there is a dignity in that, and there's a value that we bring, and, and, a, and a true true version of ourselves that's that's made manifest in that kind of work. So I think it's a hopeful message because it means that anyone can pursue holiness, even from many different walks of life and occupations and things like that. Absolutely. Christ himself was a carpenter, so... Yeah. It's good to remember. (laughs) And also, the work of pursuing holiness is work, that there is a commitment to it, that to daily prayer, Mm -hmm. to regular reception of the sacraments, to seeking reconciliation when we've sinned and made mistakes, that we have to be committed to that work as well. Have you seen that play out in people who are have been examples of holiness to you? I have, yeah. One example of holiness in my life is a dear friend of mine who I met freshman year here at Notre Dame, at which point she was agnostic and had never encountered the church because she grew up in China. Hmm. And over the course of our freshman and sophomore year, I watched as she encountered Christ for the first time through... Christians who loved her as Christ loves her through her own experiences of need and woundedness, but also through attending Mass and being moved by the promise that Christ gives us through the Eucharist. And so for me, it was such a source of strength and vigor in my faith to walk with her as she was walking to the arms of Christ outstretched to her through the church. She entered the church my senior year, Mm. so this past Easter at the Easter Vigil in the Basilica, and I was her sponsor. And she's a constant reminder to me that all Christ asks is my heart. And that may sound daunting, but on a daily level, it means that he wants me to wake up and think of him. He wants me to love others for his sake. He wants me to enter into dialogue with him about my suffering. He wants me to receive his body and blood because that's the most perfect unity I can have with him on earth, that that's what the core of our faith is. And over these four years, I watched her flourish and become more and more her authentic self. You know, whether that involved changing majors or discerning in her relationship with her boyfriend 
or what to do after graduation or, you know, even very simply how she wanted to live every day, I saw that Christ has tremendous power to change the human heart, to expand and magnify it as he did with the Virgin Mary. And so for me, she continues even from a long distance to be such an example of childlike simplicity and devotion in my faith and a reminder that that I am loved and, and that that's the key of my faith. Yeah, there's nothing like being at the Easter Vigil and seeing people take that leap of faith yeah. and walk into the waters of baptism for the first time to be a real shot in the arm to, to those of us who have had the faith for a long time, but sometimes it can grow stagnant or, or tepid, and, and to see someone making that decision and then flourishing in it is a real boost to all of us as you know, part of the communion of saints. Absolutely. Well, Sophia, thank you for coming in to talk with us today. It's clear to me that you have been inspired and have inspired others during your time at Notre Dame and beyond, and know of this community's prayers for you as you go on to Cambridge and study neuroscience and seek to bring healing to to a broken world. You will certainly be in our prayers, and we thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you as well. That concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes and subscribe to our daily gospel reflection at faith.indy.edu slash sign up. Until next time, we thank you for being with us. Mm-hmm.